ever felt knocked down, Lewis? Uh, not sure what you're referring to, maybe. Well, I'm telling you, if you feel knocked down by society, you should vote for Bloomberg. Oh, God. <laughs> I was looking for respite from the situation. <laughs> he's going to do it. Uh, he's advertising on like 6,000 podcasts. I know. No, he's coming up at the same time Quibi is. I feel like Quibi and Bloomberg are somehow linked. I can't solve it yet, but I'm sure it will make itself evident soon. He's in our phones. Phones only. He's in our phones right now. Truly. It's the thing that links them is an infinite well of money. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh-huh. all it is. You're like uh, a detective. Yeah. You solve that right away. <laughs> Thank you. I haven't been thinking about him except I got this frightening text from my grandmother that said. I thought you were going to say Michael. <laughs> from Michael Bloomberg himself. He said, I know I... what you did last summer. <laughs> he probably does, to be honest. <laughs> it was, what do you think about the Dems running? I don't know if any of them can beat Trump. Bloomberg might have a better chance. And I said, first of all, Mm. I know you listen to this show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she knows what I think about the current Democrats. What a provocateur. (laughs) But he's spending a lot of money. Can you believe it? Right. He's doing the one thing we know he knows how to do. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not stressed out about him at the moment, but a little bit. Right, there are too many impending doom-like things to be uh, thinking about without a quaint, bald billionaire walking into the situation. Well, you know, they should only be adopting Annie. Right. Oh, (laughs) right. That's the one thing they've really done for us. Yes. I would would make a joke. In in Batman, are the Waynes billionaires? Yeah. Okay, so maybe they were good, too. Don't ask me about the Batman stuff. Thomas Wayne wasn't bald, though. Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't comparing the hair situation, Mm. just the money situation. Bloomberg's not really bald, either. Is he? He's I think, got hair. Uh, Who are you thinking about? Any, <laughs> any, Jeff Bezos? Any white man over the age of 55, I just you think of as egg. being... Con- yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> no facial features, just like egg. Like, gun to my head, if you had to tell me, is Mitch McConnell bald? I'd be like, not sure. Mm. He's not, but yeah. yeah. Bald face liar. How about that? <laughs> yeah. What can I say about Mitch McConnell? Well, first of all, he's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> what is that a reference to? I just Matt Rogers and I came up with that. Oh, I was gonna say no. I thought I thought it was referencing a meme. It was just a jokeless thing a, you do. It's an Got original it. meme. It's a new meme. Oh, yeah. original meme. Oh, you're creating content now. That's <laughs> I new am. for you. I am. Yeah, I'm trying to take on Quibi <laughs> and Bloomberg. Uh, there was also that video of his that came out about his stop and frisk, which we all knew about. But there's like a whole audio of him explaining how exciting it was to just go into black and brown communities and (laughs) arrest people. So maybe don't vote for him, grandmother, if you're listening. (laughs) And she is. Yeah, unless we have to. Right, right, right. You know, unless everyone else gets kidnapped. Yeah. (laughs) Which could happen. We've got a few months. It's 2020. Anyway, this is Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. This is us, by the way, filling an introduction before we just inundate you with Oscars <laughs> I bullshit. Know, it's going to be a mess. <laughs> it's going to be a mess today. I'm Louis Fertel. I am Aida Osman. We are going to talk about the 92nd Academy Awards. That Almost 100. You can do basic math. <laughs> In 2028. Yeah. No, I just, I just was thinking about that during the entire ceremony. 92. Like, once you get into the 90s, I kept thinking, like, ooh, this is the Oscars this year. Well, I guess not. What are they going to cook up for the 100th Oscars? Oh, yeah. Probably you know, the same. They'll, they'll bring Kirk Douglas back. <laughs> <laughs> God, I just rewatched his, uh, him giving Melissa Leo her Oscar. Guys, it is unwatchable. I'm not, she's bonkers. Yeah. She's right. bonkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, consider. 
<laughs> the Consider, Consider campaign, legendary. Anyway, we will talk about the 92nd Academy Awards, and we will also revisit the legacy of Miss Jessica Simpson. Lots to talk about there. Yes, her her new memoir, Open Book. I think I'm in love with revisiting Jessica Simpson's history. Mm. I want to love her history forever. Frankly, it's been a public affair. Oh, no. That was going to be mine. Oh, see? Yeah. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> Are you saying it was stolen by this B-O-Y? There we go. <laughs> there we go. No matter what happens, we are with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if we keep doing these puns, I'm going to have to use these boots, which were made for water. Yeah. Oh, God. Please okay, don't. Now we're done. Yeah. Now we're done. <laughs> now we are done. Uh, we will also be joined by uh, a friend of Lewis's, mm-hmm. Peter Page. Uh, Queer as folk legend. Yes. And now a friend of ours. I'm obsessed. Yes. Absolutely obsessed. Adore him. Uh, to talk about queer as folk, other queer media, and his upcoming freeform film, The Thing About Harry. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. Sunday marked the 92nd annual Academy Awards. And the hostless show featured a number of big moments from Parasite winning four awards to Eminem showing up out of nowhere, <laughs> out of the shadows. With a lip synced performance, correct? To, yeah, truly. To, to terrorize Lewis. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dressed I, in his finest Lululemon or whatever that <laughs> yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. And also, there were some political speeches, a cat's cameo, and. Some surprising moments. That's true. What a show. Yeah. I have to say, until Parasite won and I was gauging my own reaction to the win, I did not realize how stayed and expected a 1917 win would have been and Mm -hmm. how disappointing the whole telecast would have felt if it had won, even though I liked that movie. Because as Aida pointed out a couple weeks ago, this is the first movie, well, I guess since Moonlight, but it's a rare occasion, where a best picture actually captures something current about our lives. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know? Something we've never seen before. Yeah, and the past two specifically... I have never seen a book that's green. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Show but... it to me. Yeah. But specifically the past two, The Shape of Water and Green Book, mm-hmm. really exchanged cultural relevance for quaintness. Mm-hmm. You know, they opted out of having something to say, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's such a thrill. Not only does everybody agree this movie is thrilling. I mean, truly, is there anybody who says, let me tell you why Parasite really sucks secretly. I, I've not heard that take. I put well, Parasite off. There were takes this week. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, already. Neil, oh, but, 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 o- but only about dubbing versus subtitles. Right. Because that's Which the only thing that people are attacking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I put Parasite off for maybe two months because I was like, there's no way. There's no way I'm doing this. Only because I thought it was a horror movie, which I'm terrified to watch. And then you get in there and it's a genre that you can't actually put your finger on. It was a comedy and then it turned into a drama, turned into like a surreal so societal thriller. Like, just beautifully done. Right. No, I've never seen genres merged like that in a movie. You mm-hmm. can't, I, I mean like... You can't compare it to another movie, and you certainly can't compare it to another movie to gain that much relevance with the Oscars. Mm -hmm. Well, no, and I really was excited by this film's win, mostly because of what you said, but also because of what I think it means for cinema. I mean, I've long loved Korean cinema, and it was so great to see it win because I found the rest of the show boring and predictable. It wasn't It was right down the line in terms of winners. It wasn't a horrible show, but 
I really never want a year again where there are no competitive acting categories. Yeah. We sat down to the telecast knowing that Joaquin Phoenix was going to win. Mm-hmm. We knew Renee Zellweger was going to win. We knew Laura Dern was going to win. We knew Brad Pitt was going to win. It was sort of like, why bother fucking showing up if you're anybody else? Did yeah. Do one of your little montages yeah. and just tell us. <laughs> well, Lewis, you were there. How are you feeling? Oh, well... It's such an interesting situation being there because obviously I'm an Oscar fanatic, so you think I'd be like... You have post-Oscars glow. Yes. You think there'd be a restraining order. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. They should be afraid. Right. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is I like the exact capacity in which I was there, which is I like doing a live pre-show thing. And then for the show, I don't want to be there. I want to be with people I can talk about it with. I like being a spectator to the situation. So I swiftly got out of there in a Carmen Sandiego-like fashion. But... I mean, I was really kind of blown away by how every interviewee was not only so open, but like had surprisingly good answers. And and this is such a stupid takeaway, but people are excited to be at the Oscars. It's not Mm -hmm. like a normal red carpet where you have to hassle everybody to slow down because they're trying to get into some event, Mm -hmm. you know. But even like uh, I I talked to Scarlett Johansson and she was super. I, I don't know how many other people were asking about this, but I was like. I can't stop thinking about you all these years later in Ghost World. Talk about how that movie still lingers with you. And she had an amazing answer. Mm -hmm. So it was cool to revisit old movies with people. My girl Gina Davis stopped by, who won the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award this year. Mm -hmm. And I talked about the year in which she won Best Supporting Actress and was up against Sigourney Weaver and Joan Cusack in Working Girl, Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Liaisons, and Frances McDormand in Mississippi Burning. And she had an amazing story about, I think it was Barbara Walters she watched or something, some Oscars prediction special. And she turned it on and she hears somebody go, well, the one person who's not going to win is Gina Davis. (laughs) 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 And the saltiness lingering from it was pretty exciting. (laughs) So I had a really good time. Can you believe that Louis Vertel had a good time at the Oscars? I mean, justice for Michelle Pfeiffer, though. You know, Uh, that's the girl. If I had to vote now, I'd probably go with that. Dangerous liaisons, of course. And she'll never, I I don't think she'll ever get one, to be honest. Wow. Just because I don't think Michelle Pfeiffer is really interested in doing any cinema. What are you trying to say about Maleficent 2? Back to Maleficent. <laughs> I think that she will be in Maleficent 15. <laughs> still Maleficent and kicking. <laughs> Maleficent and loving it. <laughs> but I'm glad that you had a lovely moment with these actors who love being at the ceremony. Yeah. Because some of them didn't seem like they wanted to be at the ceremony. Oh, such as? I mean, well, let's just write out the gate, get into Joaquin Phoenix's win. Right. <laughs> now, first of all, let me just say about that speech, which, of course, you needed Dakota Ring for. Maybe not as badly as you do for Renee Zellweger's speech, but... Serena, Venus, Venus Selena, Selena, rhyming words, Neil Armstrong, Harriet Tubman. <laughs> did she mention Harriet she Tubman? She said Harriet she Tubman. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the Neil Armstrong of her day. I mean, let's just truly, say it. Truly, truly, Um, Joaquin Phoenix's speech... What I liked about it was it was actually refreshingly old school to me in that some people just go up on a stage during the Oscars and are like, I'm going to bring attention to this specific and completely surprising issue. It reminded me of uh, Vanessa Redgrave Mm. with her uh, much more incendiary Zionist hoodlum speech or... Marlon Brando bringing up Sasheen Littlefeather. Well, you know what? I would have preferred if he just sent a cow on stage because that would have been more interesting than hearing him compare animal rights to civil rights, which white people love to do. (laughs) Especially people who are pedophied. And it it was, he could have done his beautiful speech from the BAFTAs again. Or, That's where he used all his energy, I believe. Right? Or he could have just gone up there and talked about animal rights. But 
there's always this need to talk about animal rights and then also compare it to everything else. Mm-hmm. And then it just sounds bonkers. Yeah, it, it does dumb. That doesn't illustrate anything. It's like, no, it's not like that at all. It's like, okay. Find another comparison. Go gun down someone in a dairy aisle. <laughs> <laughs> Especially uh, with his, like, mentions. Well, the part about River Phoenix really, really had me, you know, having a late brother myself. I was like, okay, Joaquin, I'm with you right now. This is very, very sad. But also to include it in the middle of what was going on with the societal stuff, it didn't make sense to me. And also it felt like it was rehearsed, but also not rehearsed. Do you understand? Like it was practiced meandering. <laughs> like, I didn't know. And Renee as well. I was like, girl, I know you have this list because it's too all over the place to not be something that you've preconceived. But it makes no sense. Also, in that vein, this happens a lot where people have to give several speeches leading up to the Oscars. I often find that the Oscars is the most disappointing. Like they put too much thought into it or didn't come to a button on it or only prepared one thing. Like, somebody I think of in this way is Christoph Waltz. He had a bunch of pretty good speeches. I'm talking about the first time he won. Then the actual Oscar speech was this confused thing where he talked about continents. I can't explain it. (laughs) Viola Davis, her final speech, not nearly as good as the ones leading up to it. And, you know, she's like our leading speech team celebrity. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to see her give speeches, period. I feel like I love her Golden Globe one for how to get away with murder more. Right. Um, You can usually count on the Globes for like a a punchy, uh, rad speech. Well, the thing that people don't know, too, is that literally the day before... The awards are the Independent Spirits, mm-hmm. and then, which is a great award show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I fucking love that show this year. Mm-hmm. By the way, and the farewell wedding best picture. There we go. Um, and Zhao Zhuzhen winning yeah. too. That was wonderful. Yeah, um, the only acceptable win over J Lo. And uh, but also, by the way, J Lo biffed the fashion again. Guys, I'm sorry, it's not been a good season for her fashion wise. I don't think I'm still not over that thing she wore at the Golden Globes. I thought that she looked gorgeous last. With that at giant the, purple dress thing? No, I thought she looked gorgeous at the Vanity Fair the Oscar Vanity party. The Vanity Fair Oscar parties where she looked good. Her oh. silver but dress. Can we talk about Tracy Ellis Ross's dress? Yes. Did you see it? The It was gold. It was mesh. Yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. It was utterly beautiful. Maya Rudolph? She looked like she robbed like a quinceanera fabric store. <laughs> Did you see all the draping? Other than that. Oh, and... My favorite was Renee Zellweger, though. She Oh, Her unbelievable. I mean, she came dressed like a winner. She's sort of been pitch yeah. perfect with each award show she's been at. And mm-hmm. that's what I was saying. You know, you have the Independent Spirits. You have the SAG Awards. You have the Globes. You know, you have the BAFTAs. People are just giving speech upon speech upon speech. And Brad Pitt finally mentioned that David Fincher and Jim Jeffries had helped him write his speeches this award season. Wow. Get out. I did not hear that. Yeah. Which Thank God we to... solved that because, by the way, it was bothering me. Right? <laughs> because it was too good, or what? Yeah, you... just to, it was. It, it, it reminded it, me of jokes I would pitch for work. Yeah, the yeah. once it felt like a writer's room. Yeah, it did. It totally did. Especially the divorce jokes. I was mm-hmm. like, that was Jim Jeffries. <laughs> that's now a, we know. Yeah. That's that David Fincher was writing jokes. David Fincher and Jim Jeffries were were, were the director him of write the music speeches. video Vogue is writing <laughs> your jokes. That's pretty <laughs> chic. Well, I feel like David probably hit the more emotional. Moments and Jim Jeffrey was giving the punchlines because this one also felt more heartfelt. The right, the yeah, Academy Award one. I was very surprised to see him kind of lay off the big laughs. Actually, yeah. he he slid a couple in and he had a cute tribute to Leo, his co-star. Obviously, I think he respects the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. too much to go up there and do a laugh fest. Whereas the Globes, he was like, "Hey, 
We're all drunk. Right. Yeah. Meryl's wasted. It's just the HFPA. Yeah. Um, And I was especially excited to hear him bring up Ridley Scott and Gina Davis, who, of course, mm -hmm. uh, part of his Thelma and Louise origin story. Of course. You know, I've always loved Brad. Um, He's one of my favorite actors. And I liked him acknowledging a speechwriter, too, because after Renee, (laughs) after Joaquin, I was like, have somebody write this. Yeah. I, I love available. you, Renee, but like, have someone write this. Like, as I've mentioned before, like, I've written speeches for award shows, and people don't have to know that your speech was written. You know, that's what the money's for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, but you can go up there and sound like, you know, you have something to say instead of sort of rambling and not getting to a point about a PETA talking point. You yeah. Know? How does that process go? Do you pitch ideas or do you write the entirety of the speech? Uh, usually someone comes to you and says that they have to do a speech for some event. Um, you're given the parameters of what they want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of go through their history, dig a little, the or if you're catalog. already familiar. And then you write like a longer draft and then they sort of cut it down from there, you know. Cool, yeah. And it helps if you're familiar with that person's work. Truly. Yeah. If so, if you guys are listening, please hire Ira. <laughs> and also, by the way, like these speeches tended to be quite long. Like, there's nothing wrong with giving a 30 second speech. Yes, you know that really nails it. I mean, we a keep... thank you, life. <laughs> thank you. You really rocked my life. I mean, Ira, Ira and I, we sit with people who rewatch Marion Cotillard's probably 28 second speech, but it's like full of ebullience. It's incredibly authentic. She, of course, looks carved in stone. Like, who has ever yeah. looked like that? She's an amazing yeah. looking person. Uh, Though the opposite of that is Lupita Nyong'o's speech, which is also amazing, but also, here's every single Very person I'm going to thank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Halle Berry's. Halle Berry's speech. I like it. Really? I it do. has moments, but I'm afraid for her watching that speech. Well, because you think that Adrian Brody is going to attack her. Well, that too. <laughs> yes. But like, she's heaving. It looks like, I, I don't mean to be glib about this, asthma to me, watching her. I mean, I think that's really someone who didn't expect that to happen. Right, right. Yeah. You know. There is also the... Laura Dern elephant in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Which one? Yeah. I mean, of course it fucking won. Like, it's sort of been predetermined that she was going to win the entire award season, despite my best efforts. (laughs) No, yeah, you don't like that performance that much. I don't. I think think she's wonderful. I'm totally happy with that one. I think she's absolutely wonderful, but I think this is an instance of Laura Dern being rewarded for performances of the past. Okay, Mm -hmm. but here's my question. Which movie would you have rather given her an Oscar for? Wild at Heart? That is, I think, the only acceptable... Citizen Ruth? Okay, but like that's like very wild. You know what I mean? Like That wouldn't enter an Oscars conversation, I don't think. I don't know. I think Citizen Ruth is one of her best. No, totally. But also, that's like so long ago. I I just think like for a supporting performance, like the scale of... Shit, she should have won for Jurassic Park. Don't, I mean, like, don't, I love, don't engage with me on that. I love watching this game. Yeah. This is my favorite game. I think that the Oscars could do more to nominate people for roles like that, to be honest. I mean, which is one of my main complaints. You have an award ceremony that went down by six million viewers. Mm-hmm. You have a show that tries to be relevant to current pop culture, um, but you have a show that is sort of stuck in the past. I mean, the winners are basically greatest hits of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trotting out the whole like Brad and Jen narrative through an award season, I'm like, give me a fucking break. There should be new actors 
new creators that we are obsessed with, that they are building up, that they are introducing to the world to, you know, sort of make the awards more relevant and to keep our industry more relevant. And we're not celebrating those people. I mean, Kathy Bates, for instance, why the fuck did we nominate her for Richard Jewell? <laughs> yeah, right. Why? She could have yeah. done that in her yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- this That time- is where you nominate like a J-Lo. That is where you nominate like um, anybody from the fair. Like right. you nominate people who are exciting. It's wild that like David Joy Randolph, you know, like or Taryn Egerton not being nominated. Like yeah. even Timmy not being nominated. Just, I'm just like. We did get Florence Pugh, though I said. Who this- I think should have won. In my opinion. Yeah, I think she was fabulous. In my opinion. That performance is a little contemporary for me. Like, the assertiveness to me feels very 21st century. That said, this year did sort of lack a Timothy Chalamet or even like a Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody... But uh, what we exchanged that for was Bong Joon-ho being the, you of know, course. darling yeah. of the ceremony. Not that he's a spring chicken or anything. Yeah. But we were wrapped up in sort of... Well, and Taika Waititi winning... I loved, mm-hmm. to be honest. You know, people have their opinions on Jojo Rabbit. It's not my favorite of his films, but I was very excited for his win as an indigenous person. I was very excited for his win because, like, it wasn't the expected, like, Quentin Tarantino winning. And also there was this annoying narrative online after he won from, like, IndieWire and some other people about how, like, this could have been Greta's moment. And I was like, you know, you don't have to tear down an indigenous man of color just so, like, a white woman can win an award. You know, it's disappointing that more women weren't nominated, but that isn't the flip-flop of diversity. Also, I do not mean to denigrate the movie Little Women, which I think is fine. Somebody said something to me recently about, I think this was Guy Branham who said this to me, uh, that Little Women is the movie Greta could have gotten greenlit the fastest. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that I think it's an uninspired movie, but it almost feels like, in retrospect, obvious from her. It's very good. But also, are we giving best adapted screenplay to another version of Little Women? Right, yeah. Like, do we need to do that? You know, it's like every theater director has an interesting take on Shakespeare, but, like, it doesn't need to win the Tony. Right. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Very well. By the way, you know who else I talked to uh, at this pre-Oscars thing? Whom I had forgotten would be a part of the ceremony. Billie Eilish? Yes. So she stopped by. How is she? I, I don't know how else to put this. Remarkable? Yeah. Like, she stands there, and I said, I was like, when I was watching the Grammys, I thought to myself, no one person should have to sustain this many wins in a row. Yeah. I find it poisonous to the self. And uh, she goes, I still don't get it. Like, it was like she had such a rare, I think I wrote this up, sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. I, again, I don't know if that's going to break sometime soon. I don't know how that can withstand the world she's living in, but I was into her. And I thought her in-memoriam performance was really good. I really enjoyed yeah. her. I liked her performance of yesterday yeah. um, by the Beatles. Um, I don't know who told her who the Beatles were right. uh, before <laughs> she performed, but it was They a, are older than her true. grandparents for sure. Yes, it was a lovely rendition. I mean, she was talking at the ceremony about like favorite films from her childhood were The Babadook. So, I need I mean, to truly oh, no. leave the room. <laughs> I need know. to find a Love window. The but yeah, listen, so might as Billie, well be Aida. This is a problem. I'm so sorry, guys. It's a problem. <laughs> Billie Eilish, I, her affect is very jarring at first, but then you look at her and you—I mean—you got to speak to her, and I, you realize she's a very vulnerable, earnest person. Yes, right. She, vulnerable yeah. is correct. Yeah, yeah, truly. And I did love her performance. I'm glad that she and Phineas had that moment. She's a beautiful singer. She's one of the most talented singers I think in uh, my generation, younger younger people. But 
Also, I wish she'd taken it up like a, a half step, a whole step, mm. so I could hear what she was saying. Yeah. And I wish people weren't like clapping and making noise during her performance. But other than that, I mean, she's I like, mean, there's always the unfortunate side effect of people clapping during In Memoriam. <laughs> yeah. And sort of like, clap at the end. Because yeah. then there's those stretches where people don't get any clap. It's right. Like, also, who is unfair, that? <laughs> unfair cuts to her during like Maya Rudolph and Kristen Wiig speaking. Like, I don't think that she was like... Making, yeah, I mean, she was just confused, but everyone's like, oh, she didn't like the performance. She didn't like the joke. She didn't get it. I think she just didn't know what the fuck those songs were. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, right. As yeah. they sang like Vogue and stuff. Yeah. And she's probably like, why didn't is the camera on. on me? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I really loved her performance, and I think it was sort of to preview for people that, like, yes, she can do that kind of song yeah. for when she's going to do the Bond theme. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Speaking of songs, though, I have to say I'm actually happy about that Elton John win. Not only because I was happy too. That song has invaded my brain. Uh, last year when Shallow won, I at the time Ugh. thought it feels a little bit like three songs put together, though I like all three songs. This song to me this year sounds specifically like three songs that I can name. One, and I want to thank Twitter for pointing this out especially, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Mm. I mean, just straightforward. Yes. Two... The chorus to me sounds like the Golden Girls theme. When uh, so when he's singing, "I'm gonna love me again," I literally instinctively hear afterwards, "Travel down the road and back, back again. again." It's like the same <laughs> yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then three, the verses sound exactly to me like the bitch is back, which is one of the great Elton John songs. Yeah. But I also like that about this song because it's about him reclaiming who he is, loving himself again, obviously. And I feel like there should be a quintessential Elton J- vibe about yeah, that Yeah, and that movie's supposed to invoke, like, reminiscence and nostalgia yeah. in a way. So, like, I mean, I don't know if they did it deliberately, but I do feel you on that. Yeah. Well, it felt cinematic and yeah. bombastic for the Oscars. And I mean, like, Eminem's performance was fucking random. Oh, 18, my God. 18 years after he won for Best Original the Song. Terror. Which he was not there for. I didn't mind it if it's two years later. Like, if you're doing an actual anniversary, do it at an actual anniversary. The 18 yeah. years was the randomness of it. People did seem like they were having fun, which is sort of why I'm into the Elton John win, because, like, people were having fun, you know? I'm like, that's why I'm still pissed off that, like, they didn't nominate Spirit. You didn't want a Beyonce performance mm-hmm. at the ceremony. Like, you, you wanted Chrissy Metz singing her Jesus song. Good lord. It was, it was just so uneventful. Right, yeah. The Chrissy Metz song needed to go up a step or something. Yeah. So something key change-wise needed to go didn't down. I think it was a good performance at all. No, yeah. and, and it was like, you know, I adore her, but it was also like, is this the Oscars? Yeah. Right. It, it didn't feel worthy Emmys. of a nomination. No. Yeah. Also, how'd you guys feel about the Janelle Monet performance? I didn't think, like, you know when you get a thing and you're like, I didn't know I needed that. That was not this. Right. No. That was not this. <laughs> this was not that. I would compare it to what I was saying about celebrating cinema and sort of changing what we traditionally consider to be quote-unquote Oscar material because you have a performance celebrating Midsummer and Queen and Slim and Dolomite is my name and it's like wouldn't it be nice if any of these fucking movies were nominated exactly for anything like the Oscars always has this either opening number or opening montage of all the films that they know people really enjoyed seeing this year and all the films that made a lot of money, but you'll be 
um, they weren't damned if you'll see them anywhere else in the ceremony. Yeah. Right, right, right. And it's like, what's the point? Also, to me, that performance was strange because it felt like old Janelle Monae. Yeah. It felt like even, even the way she was moving reminded me of 2011 or something. Mm-hmm. Also, the actual opening part where she was walking in, putting on the Mr. Rogers suit, etc. five hours. I <laughs> was cringing, not because she d- didn't look amazing or whatever. It was mysteriously long. Yeah. Yes. Well, it was like, who told her to do all that on stage, like I get that he, I get that Mr. Rogers does that, but this is live. Yeah, <laughs> come on. And it kind of looked like she was putting on that cardigan for the first time too. It didn't look super choreographed to me. Uh, other little moments, I would say that Toy Story Four winning, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm always like, happy for an Annie Potts Renaissance. Yeah, and she gave a good vo- voice performance in that like, movie. It's too just, inevitable too. Like I usually love the animated section, but I just didn't care this year. It's just like you hate seeing a category where it's obvious someone opens it and they're like, oh, well, I know Toy Story 4, Disney, and just checks it. Mm -hmm. But animated short with Matthew Cherry and Hair Love was an obvious win for me in my head, but still a beautiful moment. Yeah, because I didn't expect it, to be honest. Uh, And I was was so happy for him. It was a should win for me. I didn't think it would would win. Yeah, and I love to mention the crowd act. Yeah, and yeah. he of course uh, had a tweet eight years ago saying I'm going to win an Oscar someday, or I'm going to be nominated for an Oscar someday. I'm gonna, uh, calling it, which is just good framework. So you guys should all tweet that out now. <laughs> yeah, it's not hard okay. to. Yeah, yeah, and no I one will call you out on it yeah. for the whole egot. I've, there's a separate tweet. If I need to quote tweet it, I will get back uh, to it. If you do it now, though, <laughs> someone will know what you're doing. Oh, they'll right forget now. about it. Yeah, I, I get like I'm going to win the Pritzker Prize in like 50 yeah. years. Now she's an architect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I laid the groundwork literally. It's there. Any lingering thoughts from this Oscar ceremony? Is uh, there anything that we, if we don't talk about, people are going to scream at us? There's got to be. I mean, what if you I told left you? Left out don't, Ford versus Ferrari, waiting for sound editing. <laughs> How yeah, dare you not mention it? Don't gay execute me. But what if I don't think that Renee Zellweger should have won for Judy? Have you seen it? I saw p- half of it. Uh-huh. It felt very like Rami winning for Bohemian Rhapsody, where I was like, okay, you're just acting like a historical figure that we all love, and you did an amazing job at it, but that's all it was for me. Well, performances like that, it's sort of like, if it doesn't get nominated for an Oscar, there's no reason to make the movie, because it's so all about that one person's star power. Like, the movie is so built around them having a moment. Like, I love Marion Cotillard in Levion Rose. But if mm-hmm. her performance wasn't Oscar worthy, there's no reason to make that movie because there's nothing else to see in it. You know what I mean? I would posit then that I'm tired of movies like that yeah. in general. Like you're making a movie that is clear Oscar bait and the rest of Judy is a flop. Mm-hmm. So I, like why I make it? I like Judy a little bit more than most people do, I think. I like the gay narrative in it. I don't love the retro Wizard of Oz era stuff. And of course the electric actual performances. In it, I just love watching her perform as Judy Garland. Again, something happens where it goes beyond entertainment for me and enters an area of, well, lightning struck you and Judy entered the room for a split second. You know, yeah. I like the performance a lot. It didn't really cross over into Judy territory for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Judy vocally, is Ju- Judy maybe is not. Ju- Judy is Judy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Judy did that, and Renee did this. <laughs> but um... <laughs> me, <laughs> would you have voted for Scarja? No. See? I mean, I did enjoy her in Marriage Story. I mean, I wish Lupita had been nominated. You yeah. know? I wouldn't denigrate Renee's that much, but I am firmly in the, as I said earlier, of Lord Darn, not needing a damn Oscar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also just exhausted by the breathless Lord Darn proselytizing <laughs> on social media. 
I mean, we get it. I jokingly, during the ceremony, tweeted, people really like this Laura Dern. Like, what movie should I get into if I want to know more about Which her? Which was hilarious, And the, by the earnestness way. of people responding, it's like... Some people, sure, they they might not have ever seen my tweets before, but like people who actually follow me, yeah. people who also I know like listen to the show or read things that I've written before, earnestly responding. It's like, but you know, I know who the fuck Laura Dern is. <laughs> yeah, Which also, you also, know, I come to this app to lie. Also, <laughs> big little li- like I've heard who Laura Dern is, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's it, it was just also so interesting seeing people's responses because I feel like the. Lord Dernissance, like the obsession is very post enlightened. Yeah. Um, and very few people who are constantly obsessively talking about Laura Dern and will like shoot you in the street if you suggest that maybe she shouldn't have won all these awards for marriage story rarely know anything about her film history from, like, the 90s. Right, right, right. They're rarely going to be, shall we even say, David Lynch educated or whatever. Right, yeah. right. They haven't seen Blue Velvet. They mm-hmm. haven't seen Wild at Heart. They're not going to give you an Inland Empire. Citizen Ruth. Uh, haven't even seen that awful film, Ramblin' Rose. <laughs> uh, by the way, the amount of people who suggested that movie, I was worried for Twitter. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. And it's gross. It's a gross movie. We were talking about this before. It's, yeah. it, it's, it's weird that she can go to a screening and even introduce it, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I hope we didn't forget anything. Yeah. I think we did a good job. Yeah. I think we did a good As job, As an Oscars too. employee, we did a good job. <laughs> when we're back, we'll have a chat with Peter Page. here with Peter Page. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hi. Here's what you need to know about Peter Page. He's exactly my species of gay man, which is <laughs> we attend the same game nights, and he is also the other person in the room known for being too competitive, and it's nice that there's not only one of us. I agree. I yeah. agree. And Neil Patrick Harris is the third, yes. but he lives across the country now, so we rarely see him. Well, it's so exciting to have you here Thanks. because I feel like I grew up... Oh, I'm not going to say grew up You can you. say what, it. What, it's what, okay. It's what, valid. Yeah, I don't want to... Attack your age, like Mariah Carey would kill me. If I said that, right? I grew up I listening watched... to Rainbow. Yeah. Yeah. She would kill me. Yeah. I came up to uh, Queer as Folk late. I was in college, actually. Did so you? I can't say that. Yeah. Okay. I watched some of the later seasons when I was in high school in my room secretly. Mm-hmm. And then I caught up in college back when Netflix allowed you to rent DVDs still. I, totally the yes. same thing. Exactly the same era. I had yes. the DVDs coming to my dorm, and I would watch them when my roommate wasn't there. Uh, and so that was my experience watching Queer as Folk. And you, in it. Uh, I love that. I yeah. love that. It I makes feel me like super happy. You must get that story constantly. Like, dear Peter Page, I secretly watched you <laughs> for hundreds of years of my life while my mother disapproved. You know, I mean, that must be your life hearing it, that. Uh, almost every day. Yeah. yeah. Almost right. every day. And I, and But I still, but I love it. I would so much rather that than just like, oh, you're that dude from TV. Like, it's because it, it's about something. It was so formative for so many people. It, it just helped people know they weren't alone. And like, what's more important than that? It taught me this kind of amazing lesson about entertainment, which is that like, it, it actually can be used to affect change. It actually can be used to to move the needle and, and change the conversation. And that was such a gift, such, such, such a gift. Can you talk to us about what that was like during that period? Because I mean, for, for us, our introduction to Queer as Folk is 
probably so much after the fact then. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really have no idea how people were receiving the show as it aired. Like, what was it like even being in L.A., running into people who might have watched it, or running into people who didn't watch it and didn't want to watch it but knew you were on it? The major agencies wouldn't submit actors for that show. Mm -hmm. The the reason most of us got cast is because the big, big agencies were not – they wouldn't engage. My manager, who was openly gay, told me not to take the show. At the last minute, they, they, the, the very last day before my final screen test, they sent over a 20-page nudity writer. Mm. That is the God's honest truth. And my, my manager- That's li- in the inclusion uh, writer now. <laughs> <laughs> Literally said, now it's like the opposite. Now it's like a 20-page don't have sex writer. Um, but, uh, uh, and he, li- he just called me up and he said, I don't think you should do this. He said, we both know your career is just about to happen. I had been testing a lot, so it was like very clear that like my moment was coming. And he was like, I don't think you should do this because- you know, if if they want to cast you in some great sitcom on on ABC, I think they're going to call me up and say, "Well, I can't cast him. I just so I'm getting ass fucked on Showtime." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, "All right, well, let me think about it." And I called my best friend Krista Vernoff, who runs Grey's Anatomy in Station 19. Mm-hmm. I called her, and she pulled some tarot cards, and literally, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And literally, she pulled the first card, and she goes, "Oh, you have to take this job." <laughs> and I was like, "What do you mean?" She goes, "This is going to change your life. It's going to change the yeah. world." You have to do it. So tarot is the only real gay nudity. Everyone <laughs> <laughs> doesn't count. That's just in the physical realm. Yeah. I'm loving and, the idea of Krista Vernoff um, having given you your um, impetus she, to take this and also just like her in the Grays writer room just like <laughs> answering things via tarot card. Yeah. <laughs> Sean coming up to her, should that, we kill Shonda, McDreamy? Yeah, she's, she's like, Karev is leaving. <laughs> she put away the deck. She put away the deck a long time ago, but she would. She's been my best friend for like 30 years. So. Um, uh, and then, you know, they prepped us for bomb threats uh, the day the show premiered. There was a lot of energy around, like, what's it going to be, what's it going to be? And the truth was there was almost no real pushback. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, those nine moms who refer to themselves as one million, <laughs> they, they, I think, threw some shade. But Back other than then, that. were they in, like, some uh, message board, like, way before Facebook? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. How did oh, they communicate? No, through newspaper advertisements. Okay. Oh somebody took out, this was an amazing true story. The week the show premiered, somebody took out a full-page ad in the Salt Lake Tribune or whatever it was that said, do not watch this show. It has scenes of men kissing, anal sex, oral sex, and just on, and just listed drug use, da 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 da. It just listed everything about it. And we were like, thank you. We couldn't pay for that. <laughs> we couldn't afford that advertising, yeah. and you've done it for us. I was going to say, that's beyond um, even what I think of like 80s Tipper Gore. It reminds me of like Catherine Zeta Jones and Rock of Ages. Yes. You know, like actually truly thumping a Bible, literally. Literally. Striking people. Literally, with it. literally. And then after that point, I feel like that's when advertising like that did start to work for TV. I mean, not even gay content shows, but I feel like when Gossip Girl came on, right? I remember yeah. there was just flurries of like ads from like the parents' television council saying, yeah. this show is bad for children, don't watch it. And the CW used those ads in their promotion of In their favor, for sure, 100%. So, so there was a little bit of that, um, but it really went off without a hitch, and it was pretty great. The first season... It was like kind of 50-50 gay men and uh, straight women. And that and everyone was like so shocked that like straight women were watching. Mm-hmm. I actually have to say a lot of lesbians too. I, Emmett was a big was a big fave with with the lesbians. But mm-hmm. and then by the, like the end of season two, the gays had turned on us, which you know happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned I've learned like that fickle that species. Happened. Short oh, attention span for, for real. <laughs> That's a better and, answer. Yeah, short attention span. And also everybody wanted the show to represent them, and I mean them. Mm-hmm. Like the anger people would be like, like why isn't there a gay who works at Blockbuster? 
who you know who who only who's lactose intolerant. Like you're, yeah. I was like, I, we're trying. We really are trying. We all know we got the race thing like super duper wrong on that show. For me, that's the sort of tarnish on the shine, if you will, of that experience. Mm-hmm. But it was it was great. It was amazing. It, you know, it was really really fun. And and just on the regular people coming up and going like, oh my god, I've never seen my story told. And that you know, plus also free drinks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- I feel like I was familiar with even like HIV positive people um, from my family. I had an uncle who died of that. But just the idea that Michael, his partner, and, you know, had uh, HIV and they were together. You know, I feel like that was such the era of. That and sort of like a general hospital had that storyline too of just showing that people could live with that. And, yeah. um, it holds up pretty well. The clothes and the hair don't, but everything else holds up pretty well. It, it's there's still resonant and true stories about the world that we live in. I was going to say, besides hustlers, we don't have a definitive chronicling of early 2000s or 2000s fashion. I just want us to understand what it was. The, it was. the shape of the jeans and mm-hmm. the flares. Oh. So much material down, up, and then up here, no material at all. Just oh, like yeah. stringy, stringy shoes, everything. No, when your you jeans, back, you, you, had the, you had the silhouette of a governess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there are... Uh, there, the only ones I remember, I had these jeans that they gave me one day that had fringe at the seam. You know what I mean? Yeah. They oh, frayed yeah. the seam, right? So, and I like, I got a big ass for a white boy. Okay. And, and like, I look looked insane in those jeans. Like, it was like, a, I looked like, you know what I looked like? Kristen Wiig last night at the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> like, in that, like, that red, that weird yeah, red dress. Yeah, I was like, I was Ready like, for a reveal. Girl, yeah, I totally. I, you're exactly, I was like, is she going to open it up? Is someone going to come out of it? Is Amy Poehler inside? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. What's happening with that dress? Crazy. I wanted to know if you, when you were producing the Fosters, if you got any kickback about the lesbian mothers. For sure. We yeah. Did. We got almost more kickback about them than we did about Queer as Folk. Really? The hardest thing, quite frankly, about that show was lesbians were so hungry for that content and they valued it so much. It was like dealing with police. Like, yeah. literally, they would be like, the moms didn't kiss in this episode. What's going on? Why are you why, hiding why, it? Yes. Why do you, why do you hate them? Mm-hmm. I was like, guys, they're moms with five kids. You know, they, <laughs> yeah. they, I mean, literally, we had them have sex in the back of a car once so that they could just, so they could connect. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. they have five teenagers at home. Like, what do you want? Neat scenes together, yeah. So it was really, you know, but, I, but again, I had learned from Queer as Folk that we eat our own. Mm-hmm. We eat our own. And we're very, very hard on our own content. And I understand why. I understand the impulse is always, always, always about how hungry we are to be seen. Mm-hmm. But it can, you know, so there are days where you're like, shut up. Yeah. We're trying. You know, but yeah. interesting thing like would the Foster's viewership and the Queer as Folk viewership have much of a Venn diagram intersection, or do you feel like you were hearing from a totally different part of the queer community? No, uh, interest. So, so pretty quickly, like I said, by the end of season two of Queer as Folk, the audience was like eighty percent women. Yeah, and a lot of those people came to the Fosters. A lot, a lot, a lot. So there was a there was a big big crossover. Like I said, the, there was sort of there was a, a subset of queer folk viewers who were uh, lesbians who loved Emmett for some reason. He was I don't know why he, but he was everybody's jam. And I think a lot of those women came came with us to the Fosters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, just how do you think we find a way to bring queer men along? You know, um, for the stories that we want to tell. You know, like as an at, audience, you mean? Look or? as an audience. You know, like talking about the experience on Queer as Folk. You know, and even looking back to like a show like looking which whether you liked it or not you know i feel like from the jump you know we were sort of turned against it on social media and you know talking now about how women have come along for the fosters and Mm -hmm. good trouble you know like where do we find a place to tell our stories to each other that aren't 
I Jessica Lang in Ryan Murphy shows. You right. Know? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and and I, I will say this. I think gay men show up. They just don't stay. Yeah. They just move on fast, you know? I mean, you can't really worry about it. You can't make content for the consumer, mm-hmm. truly. I don't I don't think that's what drives even mediocre content. I think you really have to be in like, oh, this is a story I want to tell and here's why I want to tell that. And let other people worry about, you know, marketing people and network executives. Like, that's their job is how do we get people to watch. But I think as evidenced by like Pose, for example, mm-hmm. like the more diverse voices, the more you sort of include people in the conversation, the more people show up at the table. Mm-hmm. Just to slam a few metaphors together there. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Successfully done as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the journey from, you know, being in Queer as Folk to then being like, I'm creating my own sort of content here in like the Fosters and then Good Trouble on Freeform. I decided I wanted to be an actor when I was six. And the truth was, I, we'd done a play in my first grade class. We did The Wizard of Oz. I was the Scarecrow. Oh. It was <laughs> definitive. Sure. Um, <laughs> you know. Ray Bolger uh, found death. Yes. <laughs> but really that impulse came out of like, if you came over to my house for like a play date or like a sleepover or something, I would write a play and make you perform it for my parents. Joe Marsh. You know? Okay. Yeah, 100%. 100% <laughs> Joe Marsh. And I mean, and for real, like, that's what we did, period. If there were people there, and if there weren't people there, I did that with stuffed animals. Like, my stuffed animals all had names and personalities. I had a Snoopy doll who was actually trans. I just put this together recently. She was trans. Her name was Cynthia. She wasn't male. She was female. And she, I would tie her ears up in a bun on top of her head. And, and I would cut up my dad's gold toe socks and make single arm Halston dresses oh for her. This wow. is a true, true, true story. A friend of Bob Mackey this time. Yeah. <laughs> I had that impulse to be like a storyteller all along, but I didn't have the words. I didn't know what a writer was. I didn't know what an act or what a director was. Those things didn't exist in my mind. So I was like, I'm going to be an actor. When you just tell people you want to be an actor, all anyone does is try to talk you out of it. It doesn't matter, you know, unless you're like a supermodel. Then I think the people probably go, oh, you should go to Hollywood. But like (laughs) when you're like a cute, you know, dopey gay boy, like with a few freckles and a gap in his teeth, people are like, oh, you're smart. Don't do that. No, 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 no. (laughs) I mean, I go on a date with someone in LA and they say they want to be an actor. I'm like, could you maybe not? be that <laughs> see you need accounting yeah. <laughs> exactly have you thought about craft service yeah. um, so I rode that for a long long time I went to acting school I got trained even by the way at the end of acting school one of the best acting schools in the country at the end my, my very final kind of sit down with the head of the program the acting program and the head of the school of theater they were like you know you're really a director right and I was like I just graduated first in my class with a $100,000 degree in acting. What are you telling me? And I couldn't hear it as sort of an objective statement. I heard it as, you're too gay, you're too ugly, you're never going to work. Mm-hmm. I was going to prove them wrong. Kim Raver was in my class. I don't know if oh, you guys yeah. know Kim. Yeah. yeah. So I adore I've her. I've seen both seasons of Lipstick Jungle. Uh, yeah, you have. Yeah, you have. <laughs> Kim was like the other choice for Father of the Bride while we were in school. Oh. It was like down oh. to her and Kimberly Williams. So like we, we all knew. for that job. We yes. all, she was, Kim was going to have to leave BU. Yes. And I, I had the same experience with school ties. I almost was in school ties. Ooh. Chris O'Donnell, that asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Got my job. But I was just like, Kim Raver will not be the only one to succeed from this program. Like I was like determined. Once I got the show, once I could like check the box, like you did it. There, nobody can say you didn't succeed as an actor. You are in a hit TV series. Um, I could, I just felt my brain was literally like, okay, great. Now you need to be writing and directing. Yeah. So I started there. I wrote and directed a feature called Say Uncle that was that Gabrielle Union and Kathy and Jimmy and Lisa Edelstein, Melanie Linsky. Like I had a great, amazing cast for that movie. Then that led me to a writing partner where I started, where we started developing projects. We started selling pilots. 
And then about, it was almost five years later, um, we finally got something made, and that was The Fosters. Mm-hmm. So being an on-camera actor is really being a craftsperson in the service of someone else's storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They listened to me on Queer as Folk, and they took my notes thoughtfully, and they were lovely, and I had an incredible experience. I knew to enjoy it. But in terms of really just saying what I wanted to say and putting something out into the world that I thought needed to be said, that it required a transition, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that brings us sort of to um, the thing about Harry, which is your new film coming out on Freeform. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freeform and Hulu. Freeform and Hulu. February 15th, Hulu February 16th. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we love a Hulu moment. Yeah, yeah. We love for the streaming girls. Please. <laughs> yeah. It's how I watch Love Island. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't know what? what to do with that. <laughs> you just hear the door. Right? Oh That's it. It's over. I'm just gone. And Peter's left. I don't know. I don't know what happened. But... No, but uh, I was fascinated about this movie just to begin with because to me, the amazing thing about When Harry Met Sally all these years after the fact and why it's a definitive rom-com, it's not a romance for the entire thing. It's two mm-hmm. people figuring out what their relationship is. And to me, that is truer to a queer experience than a straight experience. Mm-hmm. You know, you could just be friends with somebody and then wander into... You know, it, it's it's less conspicuous, I guess. You know, you could just end up in a romance with somebody you think is your friend. I know straight people can be friends, too. I just... I don't see it often. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but so you, I was super interested in it. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I... You know, I actually don't know many gay or queer men who have made that jump from friendship. For me, basically, it's like we bang, and then either we become friends or we date. Like, yeah, it's one yeah. or the other. But once we're friends, it, it's like kissing your sister. It's like, True. Uh, what, what is happening? And yeah. I, on the I do know side, a few, but... have never met two lesbians who have been friends and not dated. 100%. That's it. If 100%. you find a lesbian, that's your person. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, yeah. Then, and then you're like, and then you break up, but she still lives in the house. Yeah, yeah, what do you Because you need do? someone to watch the cats when you're out of town, but then your girlfriend moves in. It's a weird third And then they situation. end up together. And then, yeah, that's... There's no gas in the Subaru. It's a oh, lot. It's like... a lot. It's a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. I want to ask um, you, what was the urgency you felt? I mean, and when Queer as Folk came out, I know that it did a lot for society. And you felt that, you know, resonating in real time. What was the urgency to make the thing about Harry for you, personally? I think the biggest thing about it was, one, there just really aren't many queer rom-coms. There are things that are sort of approximated. There's trick, you know, but that's mm-hmm. like almost 20 years old now. Like, that's a long, long time ago. And There are at least I, 40 bad ones on Netflix that, really? I, that I feel like, like I've watched over really? the years. Yeah. Really? Okay, yeah. I've missed all of them. So, I mean, I know there, I mean, there's a lot of queer movies. There's a lot of queer coming out movies, you know, a lot of that. But I mean, like, the Eating Out franchise alone. <laughs> Which is pure romance, as pure you romance. Know. That's, Yeah, all right. The first uh, one's romance. The other two are just, like Porky's Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> Porky's Revenge is a classic, and I won't hear otherwise. I won't hear otherwise. Peter has left again. <laughs> so for me, right now, in this moment in time, I just really... A lot of queer content, and it, and I love this content. Like, it, this is not denigrating it at all, because a lot of it is really brilliant. But a lot of queer content is trauma porn. Mm-hmm. It's rooted in our pain. And I really wanted to make something that wasn't rooted in shame, that wasn't rooted in, like, um, how could they or can he overcome his parents, <laughs> his awful parents or anything like that. I just wanted 85 minutes of, oh, my God, please fall in love. Mm-hmm. Please, you're meant to be together. Please fall in love. Like, I spent... I'm a rom-com freak. Like I, I, you know, I was in I was in the theater Friday night. Every Sandra Bullock movie, every Julia Roberts movie. I just wanted there to be a movie I didn't have to translate. Mm-hmm. I wanted there to be a movie for queer boys that they could just sit and watch and be like, "Oh no, that's me." And I also know from Queer as Folk that like women will translate. 
Yeah. Women will, they will show up there. They got no problem with that. They, that was the shock to everyone about the Queer as Folk experience was like, oh, women got invested because it was a soap. It was a relationship show. Mm-hmm. Women got invested in those relationships and they were all in and they loved a couple hot guys going at it, getting naked and going at it. I think it allowed a little bit of distance that they could really project their fantasies onto and it just really, really spoke to them. So I knew that that would be the case and I hope that people show up for it and can just root for these sweet, sweet, sweet boys. I feel like I discovered that from like, a older female um, member of my family, like I discovered gay erotica in their closet once, and I was like, "Okay, yeah. <laughs> all First right." All, what, what, were you do, what were you doing in their closet? Oh, uh, you know, just like looking, trying on for shoes. Movies. Yeah, I, I, that, actually, I was looking for movies. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. Looking, I totally looking, believe you. I yeah, was. I, do yeah. Too. I was, was looking for like old, like Glenn Close thrillers. Amazing. Like, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you. I thank you. I'm so so proud of the movie, and I think it's just a a really, um, it's a really wonderful uh, sort of balm for the soul for uh, you know Valentine's Day weekend. So check it out, please. Oh, that that weekend. Are you implicating my black soul when you say that? You you look this direction. We know you're all free, so watch the movie. It's on the 15th, so you can go out on the 14th with a boo, spend $700 each at a prefix, whatever, and then Saturday night when you're too broke to roll, watch it on free four. Jesus Christ, look at someone else. (laughs) Read Lewis's life, please. Uh... Thank you again. Thank you guys so much. Bye. In her new memoir, Open Book, Jessica Simpson goes back to all the biggest milestones in her life and career and offers us a new perspective in 2020. This made us all sort of want to reevaluate how we've come to understand who Jessica Simpson is and why has the society and media treated Jessica Simpson, a successful singer and businesswoman, so badly for so many years. Last week, a writer for Vulture, uh, one of my former MTV News co-workers, Rachel Handler, unearthed the 2009 article for Vanity Fair written by the morally corrupt Rich Cohen, <laughs> uh, which profiled Jessica's career and in doing so shaped her rise through a gross and misogynistic lens. And he's also the person who wrote a separate profile on Marco Robbie, uh, who wrote that she can be sexy and composed even while naked but only in character. Beautiful sentiment. Right. Uh, Wanted on my tombstone. <laughs> the Rich profile really sort of just like kept hammering that he thought Jessica Simpson was fat. And I was like, where else are we going with this? Yeah. There are quotes like, Jessica seemed nervous. Her hands trembled. She ordered a class of Pinot Grigio. It seemed to calm her. She didn't want to talk about her weight. So, of course, that's all I could think of. <laughs> it gilded each question in my mind. What are you working on now that you're fat? Do you see yourself as part of a class with Christina and Brittany, or are you too fat? Do you feel that your relationship with Tony Romo has affected his performance as a quarterback because you are fat? How about what he's doing is justifying being a misogynist prick 
by blaming it on her somehow. Like, yeah. I couldn't stop thinking about it because, after all, she sat there funny. And she had a button that said, I'm fat. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, gilded is the wrong word to have used for this. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Um, but there was really no reason to ask about her weight. Her extra pounds had gone back to wherever they came from, existing <laughs> only in a few dated pictures on the internet. Jessica was skinny again, in dark pants, velvety coat, and high heels. So she wasn't fat. At all. (laughs) So she had gained weight previously and lost it by the time you interviewed her, but you were still thinking about it. Right. So she's conceptually pseudo-fat or something. Yeah. There was also a tweet from noted blogger Ronan Farrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our lover and friend. (laughs) Not John Lovitz. Ours. Uh, recalling an interaction he had with her at the White House Correspondent Dinner where a comedian performing in front of the president made fun of her being dumb and he remembered her being incredibly embarrassed by that moment. I think Jessica Simpson is the case of somebody who, for instance, most men could probably identify as a singer, couldn't name a song, and the only thing that has grabbed a foothold for her in the cultural memory is the chicken of the sea newlyweds moment. Yeah. So people only remember her as this whatever, like stupid Betty Boop joke. Those men weren't even watching that show, I bet. So it's just a telling of a telling of a dumb moment. And that has given people license to make the same joke about her for forever that she's dumb. It's a folk tale. Also, what were we doing in 2009 that articles like this by Rich Cohen could be under the radar and weren't talked about? Well, right. we had a black president. So there, was, <laughs> That's we were there, was a lot, there was a lot going on. Yeah. Because Jessica Simpson is also the type of person that people are not quick to defend. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it was safer to do this because, you know, who's going to stick their neck out for the third runner-up to Britney Spears? Yeah. Right. Because uh, going back to Jessica's career, I remember, you know, when I Think I'm In Love With You dropped, you know. That, One of the great mm-hmm. singles of that time. I it's love that song. The, the Jack and Diane cover is... <laughs> no, and again, when she referenced holiday and a public affair, you know, yeah. I mean, th- mm-hmm. that was for my Dead Sea Scrolls. Like the the what, the, <laughs> Mad- the immaculate collection is like you know my illuminated manuscripts. Yeah. That she dove in there and made a single I loved is very shocking. Yes, you I'm know, not saying she engineered the project, but it's a great song. Her Top Gun cover, her Sweetest Sin single. The boots were made for walking cover is atrocious, though. Uh, I think I, that is the worst song to come out during my high school career. Yeah. Number one. <laughs> but, is it even a song? <laughs> it's just just her doing a lot of like yeehaws and ooh-ees. And right. Like, what is happening here? The one thing she doesn't give you in that song on any specific line is a vocal. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would argue that what I enjoyed about Jessica Simpson was, you know, she was a singer who came up through the church. She was Southern. And I feel like she could deliver a vocal, you know? Was she the best singer of her time? No, but I think that she consistently sort of delivered good singing. Uh, And it was enjoyable to listen to, specifically on so many of her singles that was from that era of pop where you had to sort of give notes to. You couldn't just sort of speak over a track. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, I do feel like she has a lot of performances where she... Over sings because she she eats mics. Yes, because she, because I think she was compared to Christina maybe a lot with her first single. I want mm-hmm. I want to love you forever, and so there was some obligation to deliver major vocals on occasion. There's a particular performance with Jewel of Who Will Save Your Soul yes. that I will say is a problem, <laughs> and it made me it made me want to answer the question on her behalf. 
<laughs> who will save your soul. There's also a moment from reality show where she says that she had to re-record a song because she was told that she was singing too good and people can't sing along with her. And I'm like, unfortunately, she was one of the first sort of reality TV show victims where the whole point of a lot of reality shows is laughing at people. Yeah. We really sort of focused on her when I think we should have been focusing a lot more on Nick Lachey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because we were figuring out the theme song um, for Newlyweds was his single, This I Swear, which was from his debut album called Solo, spelled S-O-U-L, capital O. Maybe he was the dumb one. <laughs> <laughs> that, that pun, I'll call it a pun. Oh, the genius. Just, <laughs> it just really smacks of that era where you had bands called 5-I-V-E. 98 Degrees, his yes. own band. Right. Also, it's, Drew was the hotter to- Totally. <laughs> but also, on Newlyweds, at least Jessica was delivering a personality. What did he give us? Any soundbite? None. He gave us drinking alcohol and watching his weight. Yeah. That's all I remember. And I don't have much from Nick Lachey on that show at all. <laughs> Though there is a, an army of people who still deeply respect what's left of me. <laughs> I mean, that's a good song. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. It's a fine song. You know, and I would say that more than that, though, I love the duets. Like, Where You Are with Jessica. I yeah. love that song. And I like their... Um, their Baby It's Cold Outside is really good, too. Yeah. Every Christmas, that's the one I would bump. I love that. I love their A Whole New World. They did A Whole New World. Yeah. Would you describe it as a whole new world? Uh, it's familiar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, fa- a, fa- a familiar continent. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, City even. All right. Yeah. A township? Municipal. Yeah. <laughs> Municipality. <laughs> a little hamlet. Oh, yeah. I guess I kind of do want to shout out Irresistible. Not, Listen, not really the dancing. Irresistible is my forever favorite Jessica single. I think we've talked about this before. The dancing, no. The, the revisiting that is when you realize that Jessica was not a dancer. Right. <laughs> we have a couple of those people now. Would we really call Ariana a dancer? Certainly no. not. No. Not right. even a tiny dancer. No. <laughs> not even that. <laughs> She's getting better at it. <laughs> I guess. But I will say that some of the most interesting moments of the memoir, which I started reading, uh, were her revisiting her relationship with John Mayer. Right. Who was a person that we cared about relationship-wise for a long, long Exclusively. time. Exclusively. Yeah. Even he, though he was very talented and made amazing music, I feel like every time he was in the zeitgeist, it was like, look at who he's dating. And that was it. Right. It, it's very interesting to me that he dated Taylor Swift because... He is like one of the few male stars who I feel like we were very hyper-focused on who he was dating. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And like he has this whole Playboy interview where he talks about dating all these women like Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. And he talks about Jessica Simpson just talking about how she was sexual napalm. Is like he just like couldn't get enough. Yeah, like of she's sex crack cocaine, her. and I don't. Yeah. And I in his mind, in his like masculine mind, he really thought he was giving her a compliment. Yeah, I mean, this interview is also the one where he talked about how he doesn't date black women. Has a David yeah. Duke dick or yes, whatever. Yes, his, yeah. his dick is like David Duke, and he's like, maybe I should stop dating with my penis. I'm like, okay. And it's a, it's a Playboy interview. Revisiting that interview was very weird because I, I'm thinking of current Playboy and um, what Playboy was back then. Mm-hmm. He was interviewed by another guy, but it's like, I'm hard pressed to think about an era where, like, he was being interviewed about, like, 
how he likes to masturbate and like yeah. the porn he watches. And I was like, is this what we were doing in 2010? Yeah. Yeah. People are a little bit cagier now. Yeah. I, I mean, I want to encourage celebrities to be quotable because I'm always, I, I feel like we're, we're we're in an era where I, we don't have snatched Betty Davis-like quotes yeah. from people, and I miss that. Mm-hmm. That said, we also don't want to know some things. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not bring back that. Yeah, and he mentions in the interview that he never considered himself sinister in a relationship, um, but he did say that he sort of put people through the ringer. And, I mean, now, via the memoir, Jessica talks about, like, the alcoholism that she was suffering like while she was with him and about how he was just basically very cruel to her during her relationship. So would you look at that? And now she is, what, 25 times richer than he is or something? Yeah. Yes. I mean, she talks specifically, too, about like not having a prenup with Nick Lachey and giving him a settlement when they got divorced and she's made that money back. Multiple times over. I would say so. Yeah, no, she's she's not exactly the uh, Jessica Alba universe, but she's made a ton of money. Yeah. In her uh, memoir, she talks about like feeling so insecure being around John Mayer that she felt like kind of forced to drink to feel comfortable and not be nervous. That's just that's really that's really sad. And I don't know if also he broke up with her over email. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly so right. If ever there was a burger from Sex in the City in the pop yeah. music universe, it is John Mayer. Yeah, exactly. It's only because he couldn't find a post-it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I also love the subject. Mention. Your body is not a wonderland, <laughs> Jessica. He would quote himself. He would. Of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm waiting on this girl to change. Okay, I'm done. I want to run through the halls of my high school to escape you. <laughs> Remember when that's what that was the John Mayer we knew? Like, yeah, yeah, quaint high school graduation yeah. anthems uh-huh. or whatever. Like, stop this train, uh. that's it. Like, he doesn't want to grow up. <laughs> Subject fathers should be good to their daughters, but I'm not your father, so I will be cruel to you right now. <laughs> How about that one? That's like a poem, yeah. Uh, and I guess sort of she talks too about the alcoholism sort of came to a head when she had her drunk appearance on the Ellen show in 2017. Do you recall that performance? I don't know that I do. Well, not really performance. She was an interview, but she was slurring her words and just sort of talked about how she couldn't keep up with Ellen's rhythm. She had a glitter cup that she used to mix, like, water and vodka with, and it was sort of after that moment she just sort of stopped drinking and went sober. I'm all for befuddling Ellen on air, though, because I, I feel like too often I'm watching people be just go along with, you know, yeah. Air, yeah. Uh, Ellen's sort of scary air of Look at this person. droll superiority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at this yeah. person jump out of a box next to you. You didn't see that one coming. <laughs> right. Oh, wow, you're shocked. P. Diddy, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> but it's been nice to sort of read this memoir and see this revisiting of Jessica on social media, if only because I feel like we should do that with every female celebrity from that era. Yeah. Well, because we've had sort of a reckoning with this is not the same universe at all, Monica Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the last era of a particular tabloid universe of, I'll just say, blatant cruelty, where like you didn't have an internet to call it out like right after it occurs. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I think like up until 2004, you know, like maybe Ashley Simpson is next on our yeah. reconsiderations. I've always reconsidered it. I Gay mean, still stand I, I, her, I've always stand yeah. Ashley Simpson, and there is nothing to reconsider there. Like, <laughs> I, I am there for Autobiography, mm-hmm. a perfect album. Invisible, a perfect album. I like okay. half of I Am Me. I Am Me. I Am Me. Boyfriend, yes. good gay club anthem. Yes. Uh, and then also the song 
boys out of my head. Mm-hmm. Like, she delivered. L-O-V-E, yeah. Yeah, there are even like three listenable songs on that album she did with her husband, Evan Ross. <laughs> when was that, recently? Like maybe three years ago or so. Well, they I saw, did a joint tour. I saw her at the Hollywood Bowl in Chicago playing Roxy, speaking of Renee Zellweger. And I want to say it was, I had to squint because it was the Hollywood Bowl and I feel that worked in her advantage. <laughs> uh, but it was fine. Okay, yeah. Wasn't so much of a razzle-dazzle. Not really, a no. pitter-patter? Yeah, pitter-patter. Yeah. yeah. That's it? It wasn't all that jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> a smattering of jazz. <laughs> All right, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Aida. Hello. Why don't we jump into you first? All right, okay. So, being a black woman in America... I would like to say I'm usually dehydrated, okay? I think the only hydrated black women in America are probably Gail King, Oprah Winfrey, and Michelle Obama, people who have time to drink water. I am always that episode of SpongeBob where he comes up on land. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that for anyone? We've seen SpongeBob. <laughs> Scientifically, I can picture what happens to him. You know yes. what happens, okay. Because he's yeah. a sponge. Right. Shriveled up. Yeah. Now, I usually, <laughs> I usually look to Gail King for things, for just little things, news, all that, but don't give her too much. I personally feel like after this situation with her talking to Lisa Leslie about Kobe Bryant and about just the recent events, CBS kind of did her dirty. First of all, going out of their way to deliberately take the moments where she is speaking to Lisa Leslie about Kobe Bryant's death and showcasing that that is so extremely problematic and puts Gail King in a, in a very uncomfortable situation, one with which the breadth of the entire interview is not shown. Pretty much what ends up happening is Snoop Dogg responds and speaks for the first time in months. Usually he's just, have you guys seen his videos that he does, his Mary Jane production videos on YouTube? Yes, I'm a big fan of his work on The Joker's <laughs> Wild. Yes. Yeah. Awfully done. But he's, I have a up. life, but, but no. <laughs> That's no. not the pop culture you like to keep up on? No. Okay. Well, Snoop Dogg responds to her and pretty much condemns Gail King for speaking out. And I don't want to defend Gail King, but I want to defend the situation that Gail King has been put into. Well, he more than slams Gail King. Like, he called her, like, a ball-headed bitch (laughs) uh, and says that, like, we're going to come and get you. I know. About him and his internet crew. And it's... All, yeah, all 10 of his guys that sit there and just smoke weed and make complaints about things. It's just Snoop Dogg is a whole other realm. However, I just feel so sorry for her. I feel sorry for what's going on. I feel sorry for what Oprah has had to do to come out and be like, okay, well, Gail's not even leaving bed. That's concerning. But all of this is going on. And in the backdrop, we're seeing photos of Gail King and Oprah happily smiling with Harvey Weinstein. So now I'm playing this game of like, who am I supposed to support? What am I supposed to do? I'm uncomfortable. Keep it to the whole situation. Keep it to Gail. Keep it to Oprah. Keep it to Snoop Dogg. I just, I'm done. I'm tired. Here's the thing, too. I hate the thing that the internet loves to do, uh, putting up photos of people with Harvey Weinstein from the past, because they're obviously photos. Why would Oprah know about his crimes? Yeah. Yeah. They're pre the crimes coming out. And also, Snoop Dogg has photos with Donald fucking Trump. Okay? So, like, 
everyone loves to pick and choose when it's very convenient. Never mind that that nigga also tweeted, like, free Bill Cosby. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Snoop Dogg is definitely not the paragon he's of. Yeah, he's yeah. horrible. Trash he's absolutely and, awful. like, attacking Gail, attacking black women in general is, like, we've never really seen um, Snoop Dogg be pro-black women. Mm-hmm. Damon Young wrote about this on Very Smart Brothers this week. Yeah. Um, the only woman we've seen him show positive love to is Martha Stewart. So um, I would say that it's gross. The entire situation is gross. And I do feel for Gail King, mostly because, yeah, they cherry-picked what they wanted to show. And also... She should be able to ask that. She's a fucking journalist. Yeah, imagine exactly. if she didn't ask that. Yeah. It seems like people are mad that she pressed on the question, but she just probably wanted a more explicit answer. Yeah. And also, everyone who is mad about the Kobe Bryant conversation continues to say, it's too soon. It's too soon. You know what? Y'all never wanted people to talk about it when he was alive. And you weren't interested in sort of parsing that part of his history then. And when are you going to be ready now? The too soon, like, can we have a can we have a time? Yeah. Can we have an exact date where after that we can talk about it? It's this idea that we have to protect and elevate black men at the detriment of every other black person from women to queer people. And it is so dumb. Kobe Bryant is still a good person. He's dead, though. So, like, talking about this isn't going to ruin his legacy. You know, like, he's he's being tributed at the Oscars by Spike Lee. Like, he's being tributed all over L.A. Everyone is talking about how great this man is. We can also talk about another period of his life. And I've seen a lot of asinine takes, too. Like, there, there was this take that someone was sharing. They were talking about how, like, we need to talk about Kobe Bryant, you know, in the historical context of, like, Emmett Till, you know, and, like, how, like, black people couldn't even, like, look in a white person's way, you know, and they would get killed, you know, like, in the 60s, the 50s, during Jim Crow, et cetera, and how we have to understand that, like, a lot of people then thought he was being lied about by a white woman. But I'm like, those are things that happen in history, yes? If you're drawing a direct line to them, I think that you are using fan fiction to defend the fact that you just don't want to talk about a dark piece of Kobe Bryant's history. It's that false equivocation that, you know, we're willing to do because you get caught up in this Am I supposed to be defending women or am I supposed to be defending black men? I'm mm. not saying that I do. I'm just saying that that's what is representative of this fight. And what it looks like is Gail King trying to bring voice to uh, like a woman being oppressed. And then 13-year-old basketball Twitter, which Snoop Dogg represents, trying to cape for Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I feel like it's a reaction to the fact that maybe a male journalist wouldn't have asked it at all. Which is, that shouldn't be a burden that's put on Gail King. I I mean, she's doing the right thing addressing it, you know? So, yeah. Just trash this week. Trash this week. All right. Lewis, what's your keep it? Uh, Significantly lighter. I apologize. It's okay. Um, (laughs) As much as I was sort of done with this Oscar season, I knew what I thought of all the movies, etc. I'm still sad to let it go because now we're just in February. Guys, what do we do? I know. I I don't have things to do. (laughs) Um, So, I'm going to take a fashion, keep it this week, and mine is going to... Timothy Chalamet. I know people like this choice. He wore a, what looks like a mechanics jumpsuit. He sort of looks like he's playing Chachi in a sexy CW reboot of Happy Days uh, at the Oscars. Hair slicked back. It's a little bit uh, grease lightning. He looks like Frank Ocean. It's like it's from the Frank Ocean line. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm wearing. um, And you know he's a fan. 
I, I know. Uh, uh, Timmy of Frank Ocean. Of course. You know, I mean, they all sort of love that whole, like, we went to a garage and picked up someone's jacket and decided to wear it on a red carpet. Right. Three billboards outside Frank Ocean's house. Yes. <laughs> um, he took a risk. For me, it didn't pay off. It's like when I messaged that famous porn star who lives behind me on Grinder. It's a risk that didn't pay off. Okay? <laughs> it didn't work out for me. I moved on from it. <laughs> I have the feeling Timothy Chalamet will return to his pencil neck prestige glory in the near future on a red carpet. But for now, I just thought he looked out of place at the one ceremony where you really should wear something formal, wear something, you know, that rises to the occasion of Hollywood's storied history. It felt He felt underdressed, and he never feels underdressed to me. So uh, I apologize to him. Still my favorite actor currently working. And I, I meant that in a boy sense, because as you know, <laughs> yeah. I just don't know how to be excited for boys, generally speaking, in the acting community. But keep doing it. You're going to get nominated again soon. Look forward to that win. Mm-hmm. Cool is exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Cool rider. He was a cool rider. He looked like a greaser. That's right. Cool yeah. rider. That's a Grease 2 reference for everybody out there. Yeah. People know. I hope they do. Did you know Aida? Yes. Eyes wide. <laughs> Are you crying? Are you <laughs> over here shaking? Put down the gun. <laughs> I was thinking about Black China at the Oscars the whole time. That's all I've been thinking about. I'm mad. That she was there? I'm mad that she was there and we didn't get a single cut the cameras. Exactly, exactly. Reference. Like, why was she there otherwise? For what? Did you see her? No, I didn't actually. Mm-hmm. I was just around the corner from the red carpet, so I couldn't see everybody coming in. Though I could okay. hear. So there would be uh, dead silence for most of the time and then shrieks when someone would appear. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of like you were in uh, up to then- Sinclair's The Jungle or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And then silence when Black China came out. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. What's your keep it, Ira? My keep it, for, I have a couple keep it's. My first one is to Saturday Night Live. Okay. Uh, there was a hilarious coal miner sketch between RuPaul and Bowen Yang. Yes. That parodied the Dominic Devereaux, Alexis Carrington uh, sort of shade off in a classic episode of Dynasty that was cut for time. Ooh. Which it reminds was, me of a lot of, of Julio Torres's work on the show. Which ended up being, you know, they would put it online and then it would become way more popular there. Of course. Right. You know, it's online where the faggots can see it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it felt like it was too gay for SNL to air. It's the comedy Lauren doesn't understand. Yes. So, so that's just but always it. does well. You know, Lauren's understanding of like what is funny is so limited to a very specific box and everything outside it makes him roll his eyes. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually an, a contempt for things that don't fit in that box. Yeah. So I, um, when I watch a sketch like that, where RuPaul's really good, uh, Bowen, full disclosure, a friend of mine, ours, also really good, I can just picture Lauren watching it and not dialing in at all. I feel bad for the people in the sketch for that reason. Right, and even part of the sketch, too, like, they're coal miners. Bowen and Rue play coal miners, and they are sort of having this shady interaction, and, like, they slap each other at one point, and uh, they sort of throw water on each other. Like, there's this whole sort of fun, soap operatic fight. And then you keep cutting to, like, the straight guys who are also the coal miners who are doing commentary on it, and it felt like we were cutting away from a funny sketch to get to straight people commenting on the gay moment in the sketch, But too. by the way, here's normal people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in so- general, on SNL, I still feel like there are way too many sketches where somebody is responding to the action of a sketch with, 
did that really happen? What's he saying? You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, that's having crazy. To, having Very to, basic comedy writing structure of the yeah, yeah, pointing out absurdity too obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Brian Fellowsification of SNL. <laughs> it's like that's crazy. Oh, I think he has a one hundred percent pure legacy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I felt like within the sketch itself, it sort of tries to downplay the comedy uh, and maybe like the queerness of it, and then the fact that it didn't even air it was like, what was the point? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it was the funniest sketch to come out of that weekend. And yeah. so at least from seeing what was on the show and then seeing that sketch itself, so I wish it had aired. Yeah. You know? And I just wish that SNL could take more risks in airing things like that because they are funny. Mm-hmm. And people are responding to these things online. So like let them air and let people respond to them as they're happening, you know? RuPaul seemed to be having a great time on RuPaul that episode. Though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my last keep it is just to the narrative that I know is about to come out now from a new Esquire cover story of Macaulay Culkin. The headlines all say that Macaulay Culkin defends Michael Jackson in um, his Esquire um, cover story. If you read the quote, of this page six article that says, Macaulay Culkin defends Michael Jackson, an Esquire cover story. His actual quote is, he never did anything to me. I never saw him do anything. And especially at this flash point in time, I'd have no reason to hold back anything. The guy has passed on. If anything, I'm not going to say it would be stylish or anything like that. But right now is a good time to speak up. And if I had something to speak up about, I would totally do it. But no, I never saw anything. So he specifically says that nothing happened to him. But he also says that if something did happen to someone, now would be the time to speak up about it, as people have done. Which doesn't sound like a hard defense of Michael Jackson. He literally just recounted his whole history with Michael yes. Jackson. I mean, like, that's not lying. That's not dishonest. It is It is literally what we've asked people to do in situations like this, say that this didn't happen to me, but it could have happened to someone else. And yeah. to provide fodder for them to actually speak on their stuff. Yes. So I feel like... That's really irresponsible that the phrase defending Michael Jackson is used. That's yeah. really irresponsible. Yeah. It is. So, And I feel like we're going to be dealing with that this week people having conversations about it right like Macaulay defended him and then you even had to go back to your Snoop Dogg thing he said that like fuck Gail and Oprah because Oprah was lying on Michael Jackson in that documentary oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. just a whole cornucopia of trash <laughs> this week has been awful I'm saying other than the Oscars this week has been a mess it's been just trash that said among things that really capture the world's attention at one point the black or white video is just one of the weirdest things ever to occur. Macaulay Culkin's at the start of the video. And first of all, it's like Epcot, of course. You see all these like scenes from all over the world. George Wendt, who was at the end of Cheers, so he kind of counts as a superstar cameo, is in that video. And then, of course, the song is also called It Doesn't Matter If You're Black or White, right as his skin is turning really white. It's just the strangest moment in cultural history like and then that's when he turns into the cat yes and he beats up the car grabs his crotch yes he's like like, i'm violent and there's something about a cat going on yeah well i just want someone to write a dissertation that's all about black or white yes okay i trust you (laughs) i'll get right on that i'm right on top of that rose okay great all right thank you again to peter page for joining us that is our show we'll see you next week Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess. 
the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melconian, for filming and editing our video content every week.